are starting a new series today, and I have to admit that it feels like there's a certain sense of irony to beginning a series called All In when it kind of feels like a lot of us are all out today. (laughs) People on holiday, visiting family, various things, and also just like half the room up and left with kids and youth. So there's a great joy of having so many children and young people, and at the same time, it can sometimes feel like halfway through our time together on a Sunday, everyone disappears. Uh, But we are beginning a new series today called All In, and this is going to run through much of the autumn term, and, and as we go, I hope that it will become apparent why we've called it that. There are several things we, we could have called this series, uh, but we've decided for that. And part of the reason that we're doing this series is that over this term, we are taking some big steps together, actually, as a church community. And we're going through this series to help prepare us together for those things, Since we started gathering here as Foundation Church, just before COVID kicked off, uh, from the word go, we've sought to be clear that we want to take our cues from Scripture for what we do as a church, that we consistently seek to ask, what does the Bible teach on this? What, what, What does the Bible instruct on this, rather than simply kind of going with what we've experienced elsewhere, well, that's how we used to do it there, and therefore that must be, well, that's what happens. Instead to ask, what does Scripture say? And again, since we've started, I've, I've led this church community, but I've not wanted to do that as a lone ranger. I've not wanted to kind of act in isolation because I see in Scripture that the, the, the normal pattern for church leadership is that it's plural, that it's team, and it's accountable. And so I've sought to make myself accountable to, to people outside of this community. So with advanced the network that we belong to, and particularly Pete Cornford, who many of you have met. And I've also sought to invite others into leadership roles since we began gathering to help lead the church through these early phases. So we've invited people into to leading as life group leaders and ministry team leaders. From the word go, I've worked really closely with Dave Main in leading here. And this time last year, we looked together. We said, okay, we, we feel like we be, need to begin a process now of actually formalizing some of what's happening in terms of leadership for us at Foundation. That actually we need to look at what Scripture teaches on church leadership and we need to follow that pattern. And we looked in the book of Titus and as Paul wrote that letter, one of the things he wrote at the beginning was, I left you in Crete that you might finish what was left undone. And with these church plants, these new communities of Christians that were meeting, he said, I, I left you there, Titus, that you might finish establishing these churches. And one of the things that he left him to do was to appoint elders in each of these church communities. And so we, this time last year, talked together about what the Bible teaches on that and what that looks like and our desire for 
a biblical model of leadership here, that we would have actually men who would shepherd the church, who would carry responsibility for teaching and caring for Foundation Church, who would work together seeking to help everyone grow to maturity in their faith, laboring to that end. And actually, I shared at that point just over a year ago that we were going to go through a process over 12 months with a group of people as potential elders, a 12-month process of kind of training and assessment. And Pete Cornford has helped us in that process. And in the next few weeks, I'm going to set before you some people as potential elders and, and ask for your feedback as a church on them. I'm going to ask you to read what the Bible says about what church leadership should look like and use that as a, as a measuring stick for these people and say, do, do they measure up to what we find in Scripture? Are, are they the kind of elders that, that we want to have here, that we believe God says his church should have? Now, alongside appointing our first elders... I also want to invite you, and this is why it feels there's a certain sense of irony today that so many are missing, because I want to invite you, actually, to commit to one another in membership. So I believe that the norm that we see in the early church in Scripture is a clear sense of devotion and commitment to one another. They weren't just kind of casually attending a meeting once a week. They were deeply committed to one another as a community. The assumption we consistently find as we read the New Testament is that Christians are committed to a local church community. That the one another commands in Scripture, of which there are lots, get worked out in this committed body of believers. And we want to see that here. Actually, we would be committed to one another, committed, deeply committed to one another's growth and maturity in the faith. That we would be those who weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice within this church. That each one of us would use the gifts God's given us for the good of one another and for his glory that we'd be committed to that, that we wouldn't be consumers of kind of church entertainment, but that we would be all in, in our commitment to God and to one another. And that's much of what we're going to look at over this series. You see, the one another commands in Scripture can't be worked out in isolation. We need one another to work them out. And so as we build through this term towards eldership and membership, we're going to spend some time looking at the early church, beginning in Acts 2. You see, in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read it together in a moment, we find a description of the birth of the church. And we also, in the verses we're going to read today that we're going to base this series in, get a snapshot of what life in the early church looked like. Just after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven, 120 of his followers were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
called Pentecost. (laughs) And they poured out into the streets of Jerusalem. And they began declaring the glory of God and the wonders of God to everyone around them. And in the midst of that, a man named Peter stood up and preached a clear message about why Jesus had come and what he had accomplished and what our response to him needed to be. He preached this incredible message of repentance and faith for salvation. And the result of that, we read in Acts 2, is that 3,000 people were added to the church that day. The, the church, day one, went from 120 to 3,120 in a heartbeat. And then the very next thing we read is what that looked like as they then began to live together and commit to one another as this first church. More than 3,000 heard the message. They weren't just like 3,000 people who happened to hear the gospel on that day. It was 3,000 people who accepted and who were baptized I mean, we, we just had the privilege of baptizing seven a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Baptism was a, a demonstration of the sincerity of their repentance, a demonstration of their submission to and obedience to Jesus. They were genuine conversions, not just emotional responses to, to Peter's very articulate message. And what follows in the verses we're going to read together in just a moment is this description of how this brand new group of Christians lived together and expressed their faith with one another. We kind of get front row seats on what the church is supposed to look like. And this series that we're going to work through together is an opportunity for us to dig in to look at the early church, to examine the early church and to to ask, what did they give themselves to? How did they spend their time? What were they committed to? In what ways were they all in? Because they set the tone. They set the tone. See, what we have in the New Testament is our model. It's here for our instruction and our encouragement. As time has gone on since this account of the early church, there's lots of different structures and traditions have sprung up. Some healthy and some not so. Some just kind of indifferent. <laughs> some really unhealthy. And the truth is that we're, we're silly and more than a little bit proud if we think we have nothing to learn from those traditions, actually, from godly men and women who've gone before us and sought to walk in obedience to Jesus and sought to to line themselves up with the teaching of Scripture. If we think we can just throw all of that away and kind of read it new for ourselves as though no one before us has got it right, we're more than a little bit arrogant, I'm not advocating that we disregard all that's gone before. We're also incredibly naive if we think that we are going to be the first group of Christians in history 
that are somehow immune to the shaping influences of tradition and culture, both individually and corporately. If we think that somehow we're going to be the ones who can completely, like, the culture will not have any shaping influence on the way we read scripture. Tradition will have no shaping influence. We are utterly immune to that. We're going to be the faithful ones. Like, guys, let's not fool ourselves. That would be naive and stupid. But I do want us to be committed to this together. I do want us to be resolute together that in spite of tradition and culture, to the best of our ability, that by the power of the Spirit, we will hold Scripture as our benchmark together. That, that even good traditions, we will weigh them against Scripture do they line up with what we find in here? It might be what you've done your whole life. You may have grown up going to church week in, week out. But, but did it line up with what we find here? We, we do want to ask that seriously about what we're doing and what we give ourselves to. This is the standard. We, we want to try and live out what we find here. And that means we want to appoint leaders in line with what we find in Scripture. That's, that's why we've not just appealed to church tradition, but we've gone to the Bible and said, what does it teach about eldership, about leadership? What are we looking for? So we're trying our best not to just be informed by what the world tells us about what leadership should look like as well, but to come to Scripture. And we also come here to find our understanding of what healthy Christianity looks like for each one of us. This picture that we're going to read together is actually in many ways a, a, a picture that then gets unpacked and expanded on in the rest of the New Testament in the letters that we find to the churches in different places over the first century. But this is a picture of the normal Christian life. This is the expectation. So what do we see? We're going to read together from Acts 2, from verse 42 through 47. Um, if you've got a Bible, I really would encourage you to open it up. Don't just take my word for it that this is what it says. Um, I would encourage you to open it up. If it's on a device, feel free to, to kind of click on Acts 2, 42 through 47. But it is going to come up on the screen as well for you to read along. We read this. And they, that's these first Christians, these 3,120, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's remarkable, isn't it? 
think, wow, <laughs> this is an extraordinary community of faith, of generosity, of love, service. It's amazing. See, the 3,000 who were added that day had encountered Jesus, and it was obvious. It was obvious that they had because everything changed. Now, I've heard people try and look at this and say, oh, but like, actually, that was just the way people lived then. That was the cultural norm. Well, no, it wasn't, Um, which is why people, as we read through Acts, looked at what was going on with the community of believers, and they were like, wow. Like, what, what is it about you guys? But also, right at the start of Acts chapter 2, when they spill out onto the streets and begin, begin declaring the good news about Jesus to these 3,000 plus who heard the good news and then the 3,000 who responded, we find that actually they're from all over the place. They were, they were Jews, that's true. But where are they from? We find... There were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Wow. <laughs> this, this isn't like a, a kind of homogenous monoculture that heard the gospel and responded and then committed themselves to one another. This is an incredibly diverse group of people. And they encountered Jesus. And everything changed for them. See, that shouldn't surprise us because encountering Jesus always looks like something in the way we live our lives. There's always change, actually. And if there isn't, then I think I'm on pretty safe ground, biblically, to say if there isn't any change, then you haven't really met Jesus. Because if you are a Christian, the Bible will tell us you have been made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You made new. Changed desires. A new creation alive to God. And that is always evidenced in the way we live. You don't become perfect overnight. I'm not pretending that. That's, that's why we find in Scripture promises that assure us, like, he's faithful to complete the work he began in you. That's why we are able to read about this process of sanctification, that actually God is continuing to be at work in our lives, forming his likeness in us, making us more and more like Christ Jesus. But there is change. If faith in Jesus doesn't express itself in concrete acts, then I I think the Bible is very clear. It isn't actually faith in Jesus. Some other kind of religious devotion. But it isn't new heart, new life. 
James 2, we read this statement. It's provocative, but it says, faith without works is dead. <laughs> it says, if you profess to have faith in Jesus, but it isn't evidenced in the way you live your life, then <sighs> faith without works is dead. Now, let's be clear. Works don't save you. Okay? We do not and cannot earn our salvation. This isn't like if you live the best life, then you earn God's favor and you're saved. That's not what faith without works is dead means. But it does mean that those who are saved, those who have encountered Jesus, those who have been made alive, live like it. They do. And, and that's what we see here with these 3,000. They lived like it. They, they were a changed people. And the first thing we read about this change, this incredible new community, the church, is that they devoted themselves to some things. And we're going to spend some time over the next weeks looking at what those are. But, but this sense they devoted themselves, is, it's not that they had a passing interest in some things. Not that they found a new hobby to fill some spare time, or that they kind of occasionally did these things, or they were, you know, lightly engaged with these things. No. <laughs> no, 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 it says they were devoted. And that word here, devoted, means that they persisted or they persevered or they continued steadfastly in these things. They didn't give up at the first hurdle, but they committed themselves to walking in this way, whatever the cost. That's why we've called this series All In. Because I think in more modern language communicates actually what they were. They were all in when it came to these things. The first disciples were all in. They were all in when it came to their response to God. And that led them faithfully, determinedly, persistently into a number of things. The first of which... We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at today, which was this. We find they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. What's that? <laughs> what does that term, the apostles' doctrine or the apostles' teaching, mean? It, I mean, the apostles' teaching is clearer, isn't it? Which is probably what lots of you have in your Bibles. You'll find in some older translations the apostles' doctrine. I mean, it, it means the teaching of the apostles. Well, that's good. <laughs> who were the apostles? They were those who'd walked and talked with Jesus. It's 12. He had called alongside him, who he had invested in and discipled for the three years of his earthly ministry. He'd called them for this special purpose. And the apostles passed on to the church what they had received from Jesus, the teaching they'd received from him. And that's continued. But what was it that they'd received from Jesus? 
think it's probably important we know that, isn't it? So if the early church devoted themselves, committed themselves to, continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, then like, we should know what that is. Well, we read in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus opened his disciples' minds to understand how all the law and the prophets was about him. The law and the prophets is what we have as the Old Testament, essentially. Okay? And Jesus said he got his disciples together and he taught them. And he taught them about this and he opened their eyes to see. They knew the scripture well anyway. They knew the Old Testament well. They were familiar with the law and the prophets. But he opened their eyes to see that it was all about him. It was all pointing forward to him. It was all telling one big story of the redeeming love of God that would be finally and fully revealed in Christ Jesus to draw people to himself. He opened their eyes to see that it was all breathed out by God and useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness. So what was the apostles' doctrine? What had they received from Jesus? Well, the apostles' doctrine was a Christ-centered understanding of Scripture. All of it. They then went on, between them for the most part, to write what we then have as the New Testament. With their understanding how Christ had opened their eyes of the Old Testament. The apostles' doctrine was a Christ-centered understanding of the Bible. And the church were hungry to hear it. They continued steadfastly in it. They were all in. They didn't hear it once in some form when Peter preached at the day of Pentecost and go, cool, we get it now. Understood it. Got that? Heard the gospel? Winner. No, no, no. We need to know more. (laughs) We want to know more. We want to understand more. We want to be committed to this. They didn't view scripture as an option. They didn't pick and choose the bits they like. They didn't just kind of throw it in the mix as another perspective to consider when they were deciding how to live. They devoted themselves to it. They focused their attention steadfastly, continuously on the doctrine of the apostles. That's what this phrase, they devoted themselves to, means. To the teaching of Scripture. Those first Christians knew that it mattered what they believed and what they practiced as a result. And they desired more of the apostles' teaching. Why so? Well, they instinctively knew they needed it, I want to suggest. I I think we get a clear clue to that when we read the letter of 1 Peter, or 1 Peter, chapter 2. We read this from chapter 2, verse 2. As Peter addresses his readers, he says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, 
now that you have tasted that the Lord is good? What is this pure spiritual milk that they might grow up? What's he referring to? It's the Bible, Scripture, the Apostles' teaching. It's the gospel. It's the good news message of Jesus. They'd heard Peter preach. They'd received his message, his doctrine, the gospel, and they were saved. And having received it, their lives were changed. They tasted that the Lord was good. If you're a Christian, I know that's your story today, right? That you've tasted that God is good. His kindness and his forgiveness, his grace towards you. Having received it and tasted that the Lord was good, they naturally wanted more, like babies craving pure spiritual milk. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a preacher and pastor, said this. He said, a babe does not understand, but it has an instinct for milk. It wants it. It makes for it. I mean, if you've had a child, and we know we've got some people in the church at the moment who have newborns, like, it staggers me, like how a newborn kind of roots for milk when it's hungry. It kind of goes looking to try and latch on. It knows what it needs, and it searches it out. He says it makes for it. It is alive, and it wants its mother's milk, and rightly so. It is exactly the same with Christians. One simply cannot be a Christian and have no desire for a knowledge of the truth. It's impossible. See, Christians develop a thirst for Scripture, for for the Apostles' doctrine, because it's primarily through His Word. Sometimes we need others to tell us this. We don't necessarily know, but it's primarily through His Word that He's chosen to reveal Himself. It's through his word that we get to know him. Get to know God in an abstract sense. Primarily, it's through his word that he's chosen to make himself known to us, to reveal himself to us. We can only understand who Jesus is and the possibility and reality of salvation through him because of scripture. Now, I think it's important to say, you don't have to read your Bible to be loved by God. That, that would be works, wouldn't it? Yeah? That would be somehow earning our salvation. If we had to read Scripture in order to somehow earn God's approval, then actually the work of Christ was not sufficient. And that's simply untrue. If your trust is in Jesus, you are loved. <laughs> God approves of you fully, loves you completely. There's nothing you can do to increase his love for you. It's, it's complete already because of what Christ has done on your behalf. His love for you isn't dependent on your devotion to him. He loves you. That's that. Isn't that freeing? amazing but I can guarantee this I can guarantee that reading it 
will cause you to love him more. It will stir in you a greater affection for him. It will cause you to respond in increasing delight of him and a greater desire to worship him with every breath and every action. Why? Because through his word, he reveals himself to us. We see what his character is like, his mission, his love for his people, his steadfast, unswerving commitment to his people. As Tony said earlier about his promises, what are his promises when we say you keep your promises? They're here in his word. And he's utterly faithful to every single one of them. And the more you discover of him, the more of those promises that you read and drink in, the more you find yourself in awe of him. In wonder of him. When you drink it in and meditate on it, allow it to do you good. You find your heart responds in love to your saviour. So I want to tell you, you don't have to read the Bible. It's maybe a shocking thing for a church leader to say. You don't have to read the Bible. But you'd be absolutely crazy not to. (laughs) I mean, you'd be nuts to ignore this thing. It's an incredible gift from God. Our creator God has given us in his word a compelling vision for real human flourishing. If we want to know him and we want to understand how we were designed to live for our good and for his glory, then we need to open this. We need to read it. We need to seek to understand it and apply it in our lives. Jesus said, those who hear and obey his word... That's his word, scripture. Okay? Jesus is God. Scripture is the word of God to us. Jesus said those who hear and obey his word are like people who build their house on a rock. That's why we're called Foundation Church, if you hadn't heard that before. That's why we have our name. They're like those who build their house on a rock that won't be toppled by the storms of life Instead, we'll stand firm. But those who ignore it, who disregard it, who who pick and choose, are like people who build their house on sand. It might go up quickly and it might look good initially. But in the end, it will crumble and fall. The 3,000 in Acts 2 knew that and they lived like it but I think the other reason that they craved the apostles teaching that they were given to it devoted to it hungry to consume it was that they knew that their salvation the change they had experienced was rooted in that same teaching Yeah, they'd heard the message. 
that Peter proclaimed, and they'd responded to Jesus, and everything had changed. And they had friends, and family, and neighbors who they wanted to share good news with. And and how might those people be saved? How might they come into the same experience of joy and freedom and fullness of life that these 3,000 had come into? By hearing the same message. And so I think another reason that they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching and were committed to continuing steadfastly in it was that they knew that they needed to know it so they might share it. (laughs) They needed to be familiar with it so that they might communicate it to those around them. That they'd be ready to give an account for the hope that they had. And guys, the same is true for us, right? And so I guess I want to ask, how about you? Like, are you continuing steadfastly in the apostles' teaching? Are you daily reading and drinking in God's word that you might delight yourself in him, that you might know him more fully, that you might be equipped and ready to give an account for the hope you profess with those around you? You see, if the Bible is for you just one voice, one option, one opinion for consideration, then the truth is you will rarely walk in it unless it just so happens to line up with the loud noise of culture. That's just the truth, right? Like, we don't have to kind of pretend that that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, if, if the Bible for you is just kind of one opinion for consideration, then you will not live in accordance with its teaching unless that teaching just so happens to conveniently line up with the much more insistent, much louder, much more frequently heard message of culture. Like, just guys, let's not be fooled. <laughs> If your worldview and your desires and your values and your priorities are no different or precious little difference from that of your neighbors and colleagues who don't know Jesus, it's not because your neighbors and colleagues have been shaped by scripture, it's because you've been shaped by the world. Yeah? And I get it. We're bombarded all the time by media, news, literature, education that wants to sell you another worldview, another gospel, another answer to find hope and meaning in life, purpose. Find purpose in your accomplishments, in your status, or in financial security, or in that relationship, or whatever else it might be. 
It's hard to escape it. And to be honest, it's sometimes even hard. I think we're so immersed in it, I think it's sometimes even hard to discern its influence on how you're thinking and viewing the world. I think a lot of the time we're so kind of saturated and entrenched in the world's way of thinking, in in society at large's way of processing things and prioritizing things, that I think sometimes it's hard for us to even see how much that has influenced our decision-making and our priorities and what we're committed to. And the result of this is that people often try and find ways of overlaying Christianity on their existing worldview. And when those things don't quite mesh, people actually go to great lengths then to to try and find ways of getting the Bible to conform to their worldview. To to try and kind kind of press it in in some way that it lines up with what they already think and what everyone else around them seems to think. And we do that on all kinds of issues. People come with their assumptions and presuppositions and cultural conditioning and try to slot Jesus in there somewhere. And when the Bible kind of seems to disagree strongly on some of those things, we kind of try and well, you know, we find ways of trying to reason around that or excuse it and shape scripture to fit culture. But that isn't actually Christianity. These 3,000, when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that didn't just happen to kind of neatly fit with wider culture. Professing Jesus is Lord meant for lots of these 3,000 persecution, alienation from their families. For many of the apostles, almost all of them were martyred, were executed for living like this. (laughs) There was a cost. When you come to Christ, everything changes. His world, his rules, his way. That was the experience of these 3,000, and it should be ours too. If God's word and culture differ on something, only one can be right, yeah? The, The truth, it's not a very popular thing to say in this day and age, but truth is exclusive. Yeah, I like. If God's word and culture differ on something, only one can be right. And it isn't the constantly shifting moral standard of culture. Because, I mean, who knows? That could have been right yesterday, but maybe not next week. Or was it right then and not now? Like, where are you? (laughs) What's your benchmark? God's enduring word. His world, his standards. So yet the temptation for us, we we can be honest, the temptation for us to throw that out or disregard it because of the pressures of the cultural moment in which we find ourselves is real, isn't it? Like it is. 
And, and sometimes we won't tread that line well. Sometimes we're tempted to cave on issues. Because we just think, oh, I just can't bear the... Like. You know, there are going to be things we affirm or deny as a church community if we try and live in accordance with what we find in Scripture. There are going to be things that we affirm or deny as a church community that will put us sharply at odds with culture. If we take God's word seriously, that is going to be the case. And we need to be okay with that. We need to be comfortable with that reality. And, I, and that's uncomfortable. Because we love people. And we want to be accepted by people and have good relationships with people. And sometimes... Actually, people can't accept that we might take a stand on something. I find that offensive. Now, I think, I just really do want to be very clear on this. There's a way of communicating truth that is harsh and unloving and offensive. And I've heard people say, oh, you know, they rejected me because I was a Christian. And I'm like, no, they rejected you because you were being an idiot. Like, it wasn't so much the fact that you disagreed with them. It was the fact that you were such a disagreeable person in the way you went about it. There's a way of loving people and communicating truth that is, is winsome and gentle. Now, sometimes, sadly, people will still take offense and shun you. Guys, that's Christianity. We worship a savior who was crucified publicly. Jesus said to his followers, he said, if they rejected me, they're going to reject you. <laughs> they crucify the master. Those who seek to follow in his footsteps are not going to be kind of welcomed with celebration banners and balloons. <laughs> we have a choice to make. Are we going to be devoted as they were to the apostles' teaching? Even when it disagrees with the worldview around us, prevailing culture, will we be all in, steadfastly continuing in and paying attention to and living in accordance with God's revealed word? Because like if we're going to be a people who know Jesus who really know him intimately, then we need to be a people of the word. Because this is how we get to know him. This is how he's chosen to reveal himself to us, yeah? Like if we're going to be those who grow like Jesus, who are conformed more and more into his likeness, then we need to be a people of the word who line ourselves up with what we find in here. 
who say, this, this is our plumb line. We, we don't want to sit in judgment over this and kind of pick and choose what we like and don't, but instead we come under the authority of God's word and say, God, we, we want to line ourselves up with this. We're going to live the way you designed us to for your glory, for the good of those around us. And if we're going to go with him, then we're going to go with this. <laughs> yeah? Because this is, this is the message by which man might be saved. At Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel, which drew a response. He preached this message. We're called to do no less. We need to know the word that we might proclaim it. I want to pray for us to that end and then we're going to share communion together before we...